The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Terry Spence. He owns and operates a livestock farm in Northeast Missouri, where he was born and raised. He is also the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, better known as SRAP. And in that capacity, he speaks nationally about the harms of factory farming, how he fights for clean and safe waterways, sustainable communities, and public health. He has presented testimony before the U.S. House Subcommittee on CAFOs, which stands for Confined or Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. He is also president of Citizens Legal Environmental Action Network and president of Family Farms for the Future. Mr. Spence has been honored by the Missouri Stream Team and Stream Teams United for his near quarter century of volunteer advocacy and community work on behalf of clean water and in defense of Missouri's river and streams. He was also selected as one of 30 heroes for each of the 30 years of the Federal Clean Water Act, and he received the 2010 Justice Award from the Missouri Attorney General for his dedication and commitment to environmental protection. Mr. Spence has served two terms as a member of the USDA Agriculture Air Quality Task Force and as a former advisory board member at the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins University. And he has presented an online lecture relating to food production, public health, and the environment. It's wonderful to have you. Welcome, Mr. Spence. Thank you very much, Melinda, for the invitation to participate in your radio show. I think it's really important to hear from farmers. On one of your slides, you have a title that says, Just a Farmer. And I thought that was so interesting because I feel like we don't know enough farmers because the number of farmers have certainly decreased in our country. But farmers play such a critical role in putting good food on our plates And good food is what keeps us healthy. So I have an enormous respect for farmers. And I hate when anybody says, oh, I'm just a farmer. You're just feeding me and keeping me well. That's huge. But you have a unique situation in that you're a second-generation farmer and your third generation is now coming on. Is that correct? Yes. I have grandchildren and I have great-grandchildren. So, you know, they're all following in my footsteps, I believe. Right. And you talk about how it gets in your blood and... I hear farmers talk about how they're just born to do this work, and they really revere the work that they do. But in 1994, you had a surprise in that a factory farm moved in one mile from your home. Tell me about that. Yes, that is correct. In 1994, there was a huge confinement building. It was really a mile and three quarters from my property is where it landed. It's 72 barns and 80,000 head of hogs continuously on that property at all times on 3,700 acres. I've spent many years through litigation from the county to the state to the federal level trying to make them abide and be good neighbors, and we're still in a federal consent decree. A consent decree was started in 2012, so 
it's been a long period, but, you know, I think we've made them accountable in a lot of the stuff. We're still dealing with the consent decree. We're still dealing with the odors, but we have done a lot on the land applications and the way they're applying their manure to the soils. Mm. All right. We should probably step back and describe the difference between a family farm and a factory farm or an industrial farm. How would you describe to our listeners the difference? Well, uh, family farmers, a sustainable farming system, produces a healthy food product. It doesn't harm the environment. It treats our animals with respect. It also gives a great amount of benefits and boost to our rural communities, which is being lost because of the corporate control of agriculture. But it's replacing to the soil. If we want to look back uh, many years ago, we had a healthy soil at that point in time, and now that we're using it just for a, a landscape to dump the pollutants from these large factory farms, the whole aspect of it has changed. Mm. And the factory farm system, are families operating the factory farms? Yes, as the consolidations went on, we've lost a lot of our markets in the rural areas for our livestock that's being produced by original family farmers. So a lot of the farmers and younger farmers that can't get into farming are becoming, I call it janitors, for corporations to run those operations, those buildings that houses all the animals under contract. And, you know, that's in reality, that's really depriving the communities that these things are operating in because sustainable family farmers built the community. They financed to go into the communities, and now with these, everything goes out. Sure, the the farmer gets a pay scale from his contract, but everything else goes out. There's nothing for the local communities, and that's why we're seeing such a devastation in a lot of the communities that are really having an issue right now because they have no business. They don't have their local farmers. Right. Yeah, I know I drive through rural communities all the time, and they just seem to be more and more looking like ghost towns. And it's such a shame, and I wonder, how did this happen We had thriving rural communities. You and I were both participating on a panel for an excellent film, and I'll provide a link for our listeners called Right to Harm, which described a little bit about government policies and how they created a movement for the more industrial models to be coming in under the banner of efficiency. What we're told, certainly in dietetics, and what we are told to teach consumers is that this is a modern farming approach where we've industrialized, but it doesn't smell right, and it certainly isn't serving the rural communities that I see and that you're living in. So how did this happen, Mr. Spence? How did we go from family farms to this mass exodus of farmers and a more industrial system in its place? Well, it probably began back in the 70s and 80s with Earl Butts when farmers had to get big or get out of business, and that's reoccurring today now from our U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. But the issue is that it's taken place because it's sadly to say that most of our commodity groups, the Cattlemen Association, Farm Bureau, and a lot of the other ag commodity groups bought into this, which was originally for family farmers that is tied in with uh, the big ag conglomerates and all of our regulations are being deregulated where we have less and less each year that goes by, such as here in Missouri. We had at least 22 counties that had some type of health ordinance aspect, which didn't block 
them from coming in, but provided bigger setbacks and, and different things in those ordinances, which shouldn't have affected the, them, but they would not build in that. So, you know, just like Senate Bill 391, this is happening all across the country, and any regulations that would apply to industry, even all the way through our state agencies, through EPA, is being lessened day mm-hmm. by day, year by year, so the conglomerates rules they please. Mm-hmm. Right. In the presentation that you gave for Johns Hopkins, it was interesting. I saw this idea of a preemption. So if a county had a factory farm move in and there were threats to water and air quality, if the state had enacted some sort of agriculture protection laws, those would preempt the citizens who were living in the communities from filing nuisance lawsuits. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. Like I say, year by year, it gets worse and worse. Early on, in the early days of all this building of confinement buildings like was built here, at the time we had fairly good regulations, even though I thought they was weak. But looking at where we're at now, I can see that everything has been stripped to where citizens don't have a right anymore when these things move in close to them. Yeah. I remember John Eichard, who is, of course, an agricultural economist who was featured in Right to Harm. He spoke about how this change happened and how citizens' rights are indeed being whittled away. And I wonder, how do we go about reforming our rural communities so that people do have access to good quality food and that the farmers themselves aren't taken advantage of. That's what I see happening is that farmers themselves are being exploited. And the end consumer, of course, we're at a loss too, because when we go into our supermarkets, for example, or any institutions, most of the meat and most of the food that we buy there comes from an industrial farm. Absolutely. That kind of portrays a little bit about the social responsible agricultural project that we work nationally. We're working in somewhere around 170 communities in over 30 states across the U.S. Dealing with these type of operations are having an impact on local communities and citizens. And our theory is just by educating them, giving them tools to try to do what they can on the situation, but also provide our expertise and moving forward. But in reality, is building a coalition of people all across the United States that will be stronger after we've worked with them to where we might be able to move the ball forward on more of a national aspect than just community by community trying to cope with it. So I think through our projects, that's where we're at besides trying to innovate regenerative agriculture across the U.S. also. Mm-hmm. I think that if consumers are educated about what is going on in rural communities. And I think that the SRAP project, we can learn about what's happening to true family farmers and to our rural communities. And I can't think of any consumer that wouldn't be on the family farmer's side because we all have the same things in common. We want to protect public health. We want to have good quality food. And we want to have vital rural communities that oftentimes serve the urban hubs. So let's go back to your farm for a moment. It's 1994. These factory farms move in. Tell me what changed in your life after this huge farming operation moved in with 80,000 heads of hogs. Well, I became more than just a farmer at that point. 
I always consider just being a farmer, usually we make wise decisions for our operation. But when that came around in 1994, it changed my life totally because never used to talk on a telephone, never used to have a computer, never used to have any of this stuff. Kind of mind my old business being a farmer. But from then forward, when that first heard of this, I went to North Carolina and visited down there to where all this started with the Murphy Farm Operations down there, this type of consolidation. And when I seen what was happening there and what was projected probably to be happening here, changed my whole atmosphere on everything. And once we went through our lawsuits and took a stand here in my county and in my township, I started getting calls from all over the country. And those starting to face these. I mean, it was the very beginning back in 1994 when this really started all across the country. So it changed my life, and from there I started talking to a lot of people and trying to assist people because when it happened to me, there was nothing there only to go see what was happening in North Carolina. But from there, what's kept me going through all the years is that all the people I meet with all across the United States, everywhere I've, I've spoken at colleges and everywhere else, they're like-minded people that understand what's taking place here. So I guess you might say I dedicated my life to doing what I can, not only for myself, but for others. Mm-hmm. How did your quality of life change? Well, it, it changed. I mean, it's still here. I don't get the odor as bad as some of my neighbors, but some of my neighbors, it's intolerable. Still, after everything we've gone through, it's still there. There's really no justification for getting away from that once these are really built, when there's no regulatory aspect, you know, to control that. Mm-hmm. So it's the lawsuits was something that lawsuits was never destined, even ours. The federal case that we had was never destined about money. It was about trying to make them be good neighbors, you know, and control as we've always controlled as family farmers. You know, anything that leaves our farm shouldn't cross over to a neighbor's property. And that's kind of the sense that I always took in it. A fence line is borderline. I wouldn't pollute somebody else, one of my neighbors, in the sense that industry is doing to other people across the country. Mm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Terry Spence. He owns and operates a livestock farm in Northeast Missouri. He is also the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, better known as SRAP, and he speaks nationally about the harms of factory farming, and he is an advocate for clean and safe waterways, sustainable communities, and public health. So with regard to odor, It's hard to describe. We can't put an odor out over the airwaves. But if anybody has an opportunity to drive through a rural community and have exposure to these large factory confinement facilities, just common sense would tell you that anything that smells that badly can't be good for the environment or public health. And I know that I have seen the data that has come out of North Carolina, as well as Johns Hopkins School of Public Health about the risks of upper respiratory infections, the nitrate-contaminated water, all sorts of contamination going on within communities such that water has to be filtered. There are large fish kills that happen. I don't know if there's a swimmable or floatable river in Iowa, another big hog factory farm state, But this is quality of life. You know, this is also recreational value so that states that have canoe places and they want to bring tourism in, 
what person on earth would want to travel to a state or a community that smells badly and doesn't have clean water? I just noticed an article the other day on Iowa. I mean, they are hugely impacted by CAFOs. That now they're they're saying that fifty six percent of their water bodies are contaminated, and the leading aspect is from manure, supposedly from these type of operations. So fifty six percent of you know the streams and tributaries and and Iowa is heavily impacted for tourism or anything else, and it's the same all across the United States. We work a lot in the out in the Myra Peninsula on the eastern shore. I was out there this fall, and that water is so polluted that they can't even get in the water from you know the industry's poultry operation. So it's a major effect for anybody, even though you might live in an urban area. If you're vacationing, it is an impact. Wherever you go in the U.S., it's an impact. Right. And we should talk about how this manure is handled, because whether you're talking about cattle for large confinement operations of dairy or beef, or poultry, or hogs, the same outcome is that you've got this large amount of waste that is applied to land that is oftentimes already saturated. And now what we're dealing with with more climate issues is that we have this tremendous amount of flooding going on that will further allow the waste to get into our rivers and streams. Actually, from the Midwest, it goes into the Gulf of Mexico, where we've got that big dead zone. So tell me about how manure is typically handled. Well, on family farms, the pigs, the cows, the poultry that's free range, it runs out, distributes the manure, not in just saturating the ground. I mean, they travel all over the land and they're and they're looking for their food supply. They defecate on different areas every day. The sun, the organisms in the ground takes care of it. It's not like industry is doing with these type of operations where they go out with honey wagons or some type of application that just spews it all over the ground till the ground's black. There's a lot of difference in the amount of it. I mean, it's held in these confinements, you know, for maybe 160, 180 days, and millions of gallons are pumped out on the soil. And the nutrient load is more than the soil can access. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important for us to also be familiar with some of the terminology that's used. So when I hear people talking about nutrients, what they're really talking about is this manure and applying that manure to the ground. And I'm assuming that some states and probably states or even maybe counties differ in their policies with regard to spreading this manure. But are they allowed to spread manure, for example, maybe on barren land that during the wintertime, for example, when everything is frozen? What are the rules and regulations for spreading this stuff? Legally, they're not supposed to apply on frozen or saturated ground. But we see a lot of things taking place across the country that that's not really overly enforced. I was accepted Dubuque, Iowa, here this last week to a steering committee meeting on the Mississippi. And... On our way up there, I seen on hillside was coal black on snow, and they was out there land applying out of a facility going up there. But it just can't be applied in that manner to be feasible to the ground. If maybe on corn ground, I mean, nutrients are good, but the over-application when these farms have so many acres to apply on and keep reapplying, a lot of times I'm not certain that the soil is tested to see what the nutrient load is. 
Mm-hmm. And how often are the waterways tested for contaminants, say for nitrate levels and maybe even the presence of antibiotic and antibiotic-resistant organisms? That's another concern that we probably should talk about with regard to these large confinement facilities. Who are the regulatory bodies who are protecting public health in rural communities? That's been pretty much demised uh, as we went down through the years. Also, you know, a lot of the health departments here, I've, I've worked with health departments, I've worked in getting health ordinances instrumented in those, but our state health departments oversees a lot of the local health departments, whether they're, you know, they're elected or put into office, but it's tightened down to where the state health departments doesn't really want to get involved in this. Mm. It's sad to say, but it's about like a lot of the doctors you talk to about the situation with the employees and the health aspect. They may talk to you behind closed doors, but they won't come forth to say anything about it. Why do you think that is? Well, it's just like with doctors or clinics. It would come back to haunt them, probably, pressure mm. from industry. Mm. Yeah. So it's an entangled situation. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned the organisms. A lot of this land applications come from these facilities does have a cleansing stuff in it for the, the building where they cleanse it. It has probably antibiotic residues in it. It has all types of stuff in it. Well, that going on to the ground is also affecting, you know, the soil health where this right. is applied to where the microorganisms probably aren't as effective in working as they are on normal farming operations. Exactly. And in your own community and in the communities that you've visited, what kinds of public health concerns have you heard about or perhaps even affecting your own family? There is all types of health effects from from asthma to lungs to everything else. And you mentioned earlier on the right to harm film that was done by the Hourglass Films that right. uh, our project is involved in that's showing everywhere throughout the country. I've been to all these facilities, all the way down to the large chicken facilities and everywhere, and the impact is huge on residents living close to that. I mean, and in North Carolina, the same. It's unbearable what these people have had to go through. Yeah. And these are often communities where people don't have large amounts of political influence. Maybe they're low-income communities. Oftentimes, they are. there are communities where skin color may be black or brown. They're more exploitable, and I think that that falls under the umbrella of environmental racism. But when it comes to really doing full-cost accounting, we're always told, well, this is the modern way of farming, and it's efficient, and if you want cheap meat, this is how you have to do it. But I don't think we're looking at the full ledger sheets because if we looked at, for example, the cost of medications that a child might have to take due to asthma or the loss of quality of life, I mean, how do you even put a dollar value on the ability to go outside and play or the ability to come together with your family and have a barbecue and be able to be outside? I don't think that we're taking full account of the damages that taxpayers ultimately pay at the end of the day. That's exactly true, Melinda, because there's always a hidden cost of these type of operations. I mean, as far as what you're talking about there, the hidden costs that they get subsidies, there's a hidden cost to our roads, our public health. I mean, there's hidden costs that's never evaluated into this cheap food. It's not cheap food. Right. All right. We have about four minutes left, and I want to talk about something that's critical, and that has to do with 
what do we do about this situation? I don't think that if consumers are given a choice, they would want to be buying into or voting with their dollars for a, a food supply or a food system that is not helping everyone. And one of the slides that you had was, if you fight something, you have to put forth an alternative. What can the listeners of this program do to change the tide? How do we improve the food system in addition to working for policies and getting involved with organizations like SRAP? What can we do today to learn more and to have a more healthful food supply? Well, I think I've always thought from the very beginning that education would win this issue about sustainability and these type of operations. But we have a lot of societies, urban and municipalities and this and that, that don't really understand. They're not out and don't see what's going on. But I think they need to understand the effect this is having on the food and the public health that they're getting. If they would take a look at the recall situation in recent years, it has went off the board on meat recalls, poultry recalls, all types of agricultural products, the recalls every day is humongous to where it never was before. So even though the consumers may be out of sight and out of mind, they can become effective in being a voice. And I always like to state that everywhere I talk or anything, you know, you have to be a voice because we are all families. We're representing, you know, the future of our future generations. And if you don't have any concern for that, go on as we're doing. But, you know, I have a real hard time thinking of what is going to be for my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, the next generation. So everybody, whether you're in municipalities or urban areas that eats, you need to really, you know, either find a farmer or get enlisted into working at state and national level to, to see if we can't change this program because the environmental aspect and public health aspect of this will never reach a lot of our generations that follow us. It worries me deeply what's going to happen in the years to come when we've just destroyed our environment, our air. And as we all know, there's three elements of life, and that's water, that's air, and a safe food supply. Mm-hmm. And we're destroying all those with this type of industry. Mm-hmm. And navigating the messages that we get from the industrial food system, I think is also really important. So when you hear the word modern farming, to me, that's a red flag. Or this idea of feeding the world, that's another red flag statement for me. And it's not the kind of language that's really used by family farmers. It's the message that is coming from the industry. Yeah, I mean, the feed the world is a negative to me because what we export, we import. There's no logical reason for doing that. Feeding the world is a dilemma that areas what uh, our egg commodity groups say, you know, we have to get bigger, we have to get better, and we've got to supply the world. Well, you know, we should should be helping those countries, you know, develop their systems of agriculture rather than dumping a cheap food supply on them that's all subsidized here in the U.S. So, I mean, the taxpayers are paying whether they know it or not for this type of system. Exactly. Well, Mr. Spence, we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to first thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Terry Spence. He is a livestock farmer in Northeast Missouri. He's also the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, better known as SRAP, and the website is 
S R A P R O J E C T. So it's S Rap Project. Org, and I'll provide a link to that. Thank you so much, Mr. Spence. I appreciate the advocacy that you do, as well as the type of quality farming that you're involved with. Well, thank you so much, Melinda, for having me on. Mm-hmm.